Welcome to another episode of Oberter Dicta, Bloomsbury Professionals podcast on all things law and tax with me, Rachel Sherlock, and also Gronya McMahon. Today we are bringing you part two of an interview with Michael Boylan, author of Medical Negligence Litigation, the new edition of which was released last month. We split this interview into two parts because there was so much ground to cover. In this episode, Michael discusses constructive knowledge of injuries, how to manage cases where there is a limited life expectancy, and dealing with leapfrog appeals. We started with asking him about the UK case of Norton versus Chorus UK Limited, where the Court of Appeal held that the claimant had had constructive knowledge of his injuries within the meaning of Section 14 of the Limitation Act 1980, and so the claim was time barred. We asked Michael to outline where the law stands in this area in Ireland. The law in this area is a minefield. It is really, really tricky. And the concept of, of date of knowledge is fraught with, with complexity. But the, the law in Ireland is principally governed by the 1991 Act Statute of Limitations. And Section 2 of that Act is, is, a, is a key section. And to, to, to make this as simple as I can... The general rule is, and practitioners would, if at all possible, they should try and have proceedings instituted within two years of the date of the treatment complained of, if that is possible, because it takes the statute of limitations defence off the pitch completely if you can do that. Now, the problem is that most patients don't want to be suing their doctors and they don't want to be doing that. And if they have a bad outcome to treatment, the doctor will generally say, well, look, you know, this didn't go as we planned, but we're going to try and get you right and we'll try and rehabilitate you and get you right and it'll, it'll end up right in the end. And the patients are absolutely delighted with that and would be happy to go along with it in in most cases and hope they get better and get the cure that they hope for. So the problem is then that by the time the rehabilitation course has gone through and we've waited 12 or 18 months and the patient hasn't got better and is left with a, I don't know, a limp or pain or whatever, or loss of function in the leg or the arm or whatever, the patient then will potentially look around uh, and start to ask questions about how I've ended up in this position and may go to their solicitor at that stage. And often clients come to me, uh, you know, 20 months after the surgery complained of and you're faced with the dilemma do you do you institute proceedings within two years of the surgery complained of, or do you? And you, you won't know at that stage if you often won't know if there has been um, any any negligence, and you won't know until you've got an expert opinion. And the dilemma is: Do you issue proceedings within the two years, or do you forensically investigate the case and look to get expert opinion? And that can take could take a year. So uh, by the time you've got the expert opinion, it could be three years since the surgery complained of. And then you're into a situation where the defendant uh, will argue 
that the case is statute barred. So, as I say, the general rule is two years and try and issue proceedings within two years. But if you can't do that, if two years has already gone by, you then try to avail of Section 2 of the 1991 Act. And you argue that the patient didn't have knowledge of some of the key facts and that he has to have not he or she has to have knowledge of and i think one of the key facts that he has to have knowledge of is specified in section 2 subsection 1c which requires that the patient must have knowledge of the fact that they have been that they have been injured and that in, injury was attributable in whole or in part to an act or omission alleged to constitute negligence. And it's that attributing the injury to the an act of negligence, which is often the, the most controversial and difficult concept to grapple with. And there are many, many cases in the jurisprudence on this. There were two leading cases this year that went to the Supreme Court and they were heard as co-joined hearings. It was O'Sullivan versus the HSE and Green versus Hardiman. But to sum up, the the courts uh, were, in Judge Finley Gagan adopted a, a qu- quite a pro-patient approach and, thank goodness, was prepared to allow the case to proceed and determine that the case was not statute barred. In the first of the cases, if I can just talk about O'Sullivan's case, it's always best to talk about cases um, based on facts. It, It illustrates them better, I think. In O'Sullivan's case, proceedings were issued two years and 11 months after the operation. The plaintiff had an operation, I think, on on his colon and got MRSA in the course of surgery. And the MRSA caused uh, profound difficulties, health difficulties for for the patient. The plaintiff was told while he was in hospital that you got MRSA while you were in hospital. And um, so the patient knew that he had... Uh, contracted MRSA as a result of surgery in the hospital. And the patient knew that the MRSA had caused him injury, but the patient did not know that the MRSA was attributable to an act or omission alleged to constitute negligence. The plaintiff did not know, actually know that, and the plaintiff argued that, I, that he didn't know it until getting the benefit of expert medical advice. Now, the court, there was a high court, there was a court of appeal, and there was a Supreme Court. And just to show how complex this is, they all came to different views about when the plaintiff had the requisite knowledge. The plaintiff went to his solicitor. The solicitor had experience in dealing with MRSA claims and sent the uh, case to a GP who the, who he'd used to screen these type of cases and got the benefit of a GP report which said, yes, there may be something in this. And the plaintiff argued that that is the earliest date upon which uh, I had knowledge that I may have a case, that my injury may be attributable to negligence. And that's the date I had knowledge, the earliest date I had knowledge. 
the High Court went with that and said, yes, that's the date that the plaintiff had the, the requisite knowledge and the case wasn't statute barred. The defendant appealed that. The Court of Appeal came to a different view. The majority of the Court of Appeal held that the date of knowledge was not when a GP report was obtained, which said you may have a case, but was when a medical specialist, a consultant's report was obtained later, which says, yes, uh, there was substandard care in the infection control in the hospital, and that was the date of knowledge. A minority of the Court of Appeal held, no, no, the date of knowledge was when your solicitor got the 800 pages of medical records. So you can see the dilemma and the difficulties uh, that this can cause for practitioners. Ultimately, the Supreme Court held that the case wasn't statute barred, that proceedings were issued within two years of the date when the, uh, the patient could attribute their injury to neglect on, behalf, on the part of the, uh, of the hospital. So that is the state of the law as it is now. I hope that has given uh, listeners some insight into it. But if I can just sum up and say that every case is fact-dependent and it's hard to, to have a general rule. Um, my guidance to practitioners would be, if at all possible, to not get yourself involved in arguments uh, about the statute if you can issue proceedings within two years of the surgery complained of or the treatment complained of, do that. Michael, we've seen an awful lot of cases and obviously you do as a practitioner where clients may come into you with a very limited life expectancy and there's an urgency in moving the case on or issuing proceedings. What's your advice to practitioners when a client like that comes through the door? Yeah, well, we, we've had actually just three of them last July, three such cases. And I suppose that's very unusual to have so many the one time. But I, I suppose it's a hangover, I suspect, from COVID. They were all delaying diagnosis of cancer cases. And I think I fear, and I've heard this anecdotally from from doctors, that the uh, COVID shutdown of healthcare for 18 months or two years has, has meant a lot of cancer cases uh, have had a long delay in, in diagnosis and with consequential poor uh, effect on life expectancy. So my advice is to get the cases case managed by the court as quickly as possible, get on to your opponent and appeal to their humanity and uh, their cooperation, ask for their cooperation. And you would be surprised and pleasantly surprised at the cooperation that's forthcoming and how quickly cases can be dealt with with cooperation. And I've had good outcomes, I mean, uh, in the sense that all of the cases were dealt with within uh, six or nine months from start to the end. And um, cases settled at mediation in, in the in the month before the scheduled trial date. And the courts have, have been willing to engage with the practitioners and agree at an expedited timeline for pleadings and discovery and case management and trial. And it has worked uh, well for 
for us. But it, 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 it does require, it's a bit like dealing with injunction cases. It really requires you to drop other non-urgent work and concentrate your resources, your available resources, and getting these cases fast-tracked and through the court system as quickly as possible. And it does require you to have access to experts who are willing to provide you with urgent opinions. And it has worked, but it is a challenge, but it is very, very rewarding. And it just goes to show what can be done uh, with our much maligned litigation system and what it can achieve. What has been the impact of the personal injury guidelines on medical negligence claims? Well, uh, fortunately, I might say not as much as in the general personal injury sphere, because uh, the first point I'd make is that most patients will not be suing their doctors or hospitals unless they have had life-altering injuries, serious injuries. And the guidelines don't do a whole lot of mischief at the severe end of the scale. And indeed, in the, for the catastrophically injured, uh, uh, patients or plaintiffs, uh, the, the cap on damages was lifted from 500,000 to 550,000. Um, so it went up slightly and also, Usefully, we've just been talking about cases with, with limited life expectancy. The personal injury guidelines have, have tariffs or guidelines for cases where there was a serious diminution in life expectancy as a result of the negligently inflicted injuries. Such um, guidelines didn't exist for, for loss of life expectancy. Such recommendations didn't exist until those guidelines came in last year. And they're useful as well. So they uh, categorize, you know, serious loss of, of life expectancy as catastrophic injuries. And again, there was some controversy about, about that, but uh, until the guidelines came in, I should say. So that, that's been helpful. And there's a lot of injuries, you know, in terms of surgeons causing uh, internal injuries and severing arteries and cutting nerves and uh, uh, surgical mishaps like that and um, that aren't really covered by the guidelines. So they've had less of an impact than in the, in the general sphere of things. But on the, on the lesser end of the scale, certainly they have had a negative impact in terms of general damages. Michael, our final question on the legal front today before our little roundup. The Ruth Morrissey case, we had a case analysis of that on Bloomsbury Professional Online, and that was a leapfrog appeal. Could you tell us what practitioners could take from that case? Well, I have to say that the the case, the case really, I mean, there was a huge amount of hysteria when when the, the High Court judgment of Judge Cross came out and the use of the memorable phrase which he borrowed from a UK Court of Appeal decision. Um, I think the UK case was Penny Palmer, and Lord Wolf uh, used the memorable phrase in that, um, saying that you know a smear test shouldn't be classified as normal unless the screener 
had absolute confidence, I think the phrase was, absolute confidence that it was normal and there were no abnormalities. So that phrase, absolute confidence, was somehow transposed wrongly by, uh, I have to say, a lot of hysterical commentators speaking on behalf of the medical establishment somehow suggested that the done principles had been altered radically and that doctors now were now expected to make diagnosis and treatment in every sphere of medicine and the the standard demanded of them had suddenly gone stratospheric and would be impossible to meet and that every single decision had to be made with absolute confidence uh, otherwise it was negligent that was a complete misreading of what was decided it was agreed in in uh, the Morrissey case in the High Court and in the Supreme Court that the Penny Palmer case, Court of Appeal case, which effectively endorsed the UK equivalent of the Dunn principles, represented good law and that Dunn and the National Maternity Hospital, the principles of Dunn and the National Maternity Hospital still represented good law and that the the phrase really did not mean what the defendants' medical establishment were contending for, that it was agreed that the general and approved practice among screeners in in the cervical smear area was that the general and approved practice was that a doubtful smear test, a, a test which you couldn't say with absolute confidence, had no abnormalities, shouldn't be categorized as normal. It should be put to one side for a second review, a second check. And unless you could say with absolute confidence, it had no abnormal features. And that was the agreed general and approved practice in the medical profession. And Morrissey was doing no more than endorsing the Dunn principle. So I think that we can all calm down and continue to practice on the basis that Dunn and the National Maternity Hospital represents good law. Thanks very much for that. I think that's a very sensible and not um, hyperbolic response to that. And just to close out, I, we just have a couple of lighthearted, quickfire questions just a few, just to close out our episode. So to begin with, um, who is your favorite author? <laughs> well, I'd love to be able to say James Joyce or somebody like that, but um, <laughs> um, and I'm not a voracious read- reader at the moment, but I, I suppose I loved the, bu- the books of Wilbur Smith, you know, all his books about South Africa and Africa generally. I, I, I love them all. Um the apartheid and the Boer Wars and the gold rushes and mm. even ones about other parts of Africa, the Congo and that. I just found them fascinating um, and enjoyed them greatly. You said you're not a voracious reader at the moment, but is there any mm. book that you're currently reading? Well, I just picked up there on Saturday because it was bought for me by my son, John Connolly. I've just started it, The Dirty South. It looks like it could be a good book. It's a prequel to his Charlie Parker books. Um, so I can't tell you a whole lot about it at the moment, except uh, his daughter was murdered and I think his wife too. So I'm looking forward to that. But um, 
Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's it's um, light reading, you know. He's a good writer. Mm-hmm. He's a dub as well, I think, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. Um, if you had three things to bring to a desert island, what would they be? Is this a real question or is it a... I, I, I would certainly bring... Uh, am I allowed to bring my wife? No. You can. Yes, well, I would bring my wife. <laughs> I would, I would. And um, I would bring my music. I, I would bring a, an iPod or the equivalent of something that could keep going with long life batteries. Uh, I'd certainly bring my music and my Spotify list. And um, I would bring my pet, Jack Russell. Wonderful. And finally, if you weren't a solicitor, what would you be? What would you like to have been? I suppose I would love to have been a musician, but I haven't a musical note in my head. I love music. Um, I would like to have been a musician. What kind of music do you like, Michael? Oh, I'm. I'm. Um, I, I have to confess that I would. I suppose I would be a rocker. Um, mm. Hard to imagine that, but um, in my decrepit state. But I, anything from 1966 to 1976 would would have been. I think that was the the best decade in music that uh, between between the Beatles and the Stones and Simon and Garfunkel and any. Even punk, anything, anything in there you can imagine is marvelous stuff. I would like Van Morrison. I would like um, Bruce Springsteen, Simon and Garfunkel, Led Zeppelin, um, anyone you like. Um, Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure. I think we've learned a huge amount today. You know, you've just been brilliant contributor on the podcast. And I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on your book. Um, So thank you for being so generous with your time and wishing you the very best. That's it for another episode of Oberter Dicta. Thanks to Michael Boylan for joining us on the podcast. And you can purchase his new book, Medical Negligence Litigation, on bloomsburyprofessional.com. It is also available to subscribers of Irish Medical Law on Bloomsbury Professional Online. Until next time.